Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. This podcast discusses products distributed in Australia by Galderma Australia, PTY Limited, Bell Rose, New South Wales, Australia, and in New Zealand by Healthcare Logistics, Airport Oaks, Mangaree. Good evening, Per Winloff, all the way from Sweden. Thank you so much for joining us. We are very excited to share in the your 25th birthday of the first ever sugar-based filler. Quite exciting. Um, how are you, Per? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's uh, morning here in Sweden, on the other side of the of the planet. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to discussing this with you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm really. I'm really proud as well that we've come so far. It's yeah. a long time, 25 years. Absolutely. How, 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 how fast has it felt though? Has it felt like 25 years or has it felt like five minutes? Uh, well, not like five minutes, but uh, yeah. <laughs> five years definitely then maybe. Not, not like 25 years. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, well, you, you sort of alluded to that at the beginning. You said, you know, how much you still enjoy your work and what you do. And I guess, you know, when you're doing what you love, it never really feels like work. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I still, as I said, I mean, I've been, I've been there from from the beginning, if you like, with the fillers, and yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. I'm gonna be here for quite some more time, I think. So, I really like it. I mean, things, things, even if uh, it's felt like it's been uh, quick, but uh, there's been a lot of things happening since the first uh, launch in in the '96. So many things have happened, really. In especially in the way how these fillers are used, I would say, and also, of course, in, in what they are. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on, Per. And uh, for David and I, it's kind of a bit of an honor, you know, sort of a, from a personal perspective. You know, I'm an injector. David works in the industry. Uh, his clinics obviously supply, you know, some of the products that your company makes. But, um, you know, I saw this as sort of a seminal podcast where we, we've done one with, we actually had Gene Carruthers on. Of course, this is sort of the other side of the story. And I think it's probably a less known side of the story about, you know, where sugar-based fillers actually came from and how they were first developed. So we're really proud to sort of share that story. But do you want to tell us sort of what your your official title is for Galderma and, and what you actually do now? And then we can maybe go back into the history of where it all started. Yeah, uh, well, today my title is, uh, we call it Chief Design Expert. So what I do in my daily work is uh, participate in, in our projects for developing even newer fillers, for instance, and uh, mainly working with, uh, well, a lot of risk assessment stuff and uh, product specification. Also, what I do is I, I provide advice to many different parts of the company. I belong to the development R&D within uh, Galderma in Sweden, Uppsala. But then also we have a lot of interactions uh, I do with uh, marketing, regulatory, quality assurance, uh, quality control, and well, more or less all parts of the company. 
And also, as I do now, I, I now and then get to uh, discuss or educate or uh, well also learn a lot by interacting with, with people who are not within Galderma, which is also yeah, a fantastic opportunity for me to learn and sometimes to teach as well. So it's really a very diverse job I have, actually, and I really like that. Yeah. Um, I read that you started out as, as a microbiologist and um, I'm just sort of curious, sort of was this sort of the, the sort of career path that you thought you might, you might sort of end up in? I'm, I'm assuming it's not. And then sort of how did you sort of progress from, you know, working in such a, a I guess, well, I, when I think about microbiologists, I don't think about fillers. So how, how did that transition happen? Yeah, well, in a way it happened because uh, one summer as I was uh, studying at the university, it was on the other side of the street from Wilkumet that was then located. So I, uh, well, as you know, as a student, you want to make some money in the summer. <laughs> so I walked over there and talked to uh, Dr. Ogerup, who is, uh, was the founder of, of Cumed. And I mean, to tell you the truth, I mean, it was very small at the time only a few people in there, in a, in a little house. So, uh, yeah, and I started working there in the summer. And then uh, I, I would say, I mean, of course, as you know, when you educate uh, yourself, we, you believe you're going to be, from a microbiologist, you, you would believe that you would be working with uh, bacteria or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, usually things don't uh, happen the way you, you thought they were going to be. So I I do think, though, that since uh, the, these uh, sugar-based fillers actually have a lot uh, to do with uh, microbiology from the, uh, the source of them, which is bacterial source uh, for us and from, for, the, for the business now. There's a lot of things you need to consider, cleanliness in the manufacturing also and things like that. So I think it's been good to have that background. But then, of course, I mean... We educate ourselves throughout our lives. So I've learned a lot of things, not least from, from Dr. Ogrup, who, who uh, founded the company and took me in as a, a first employee after the, the year after I worked there in the summer. But uh, I, I think that uh, yeah, it's really been something I did not anticipate as I started educating myself as a microbiologist, but I think I've had a lot. A lot of good things yeah. coming in from my education as well. Yeah. So you were the first employee. Um, how long did it take for number two to come along? I can imagine <laughs> it was a bit lonely in the lunchroom up until... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I mean, the company, as I started working, was uh, like, it, it was actually more people than me there. Right. And, the, and the man who started the company. But, uh, you know, he was really, uh, well, he, he's still alive, but he's not uh, within Galderma today. But uh, he, he uh, worked, he was really an entrepreneur. So he had a lot of different company ideas ongoing. So I think we were about five people working there, even though we, we belong to different constellations and things like that. The way you work probably when you're an entrepreneur and have a lot of ideas and want to, to try them all at the same time. Um, I thought it would be worth sort of saying now to the listeners, you know, yeah. because this is a, a sort of a, a pharmaceutical company sort of conversation, we won't obviously be able to speak as openly about certain um, 
you know, names and brands and things like that. We're yeah. going to stay well uh, within the sort of compliance and regulatory sort of yeah. laws that uh, we have to abide by uh, in Australia. I know there are listeners in other countries and, and maybe that doesn't apply. So if we talk about things like sugar-based filler, um, you know, that, that's as much as we can say. Yeah. So, we, yeah, talking in code a little yeah. bit, but hopefully, you know, our listeners are very educated, so I'm sure they'll know exactly what it is that we're saying. So, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, you mentioned two companies. Uh, we've obviously alluded to Galderma, but also Qmed. Can you just tell us the chronology of of who Qmed were? What were they doing? You know, when you joined, and 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 sort of when did it become Galderma? Yes, uh, you can say Qmed uh, was uh, started as. Uh, um, what do you say? Um, part of, uh, well, in Uppsala, we can start even earlier. Uh, the man who founded QMED, Dr. Bengt Agerup, and also invented uh, the, the, uh, the patent for, for our sugar-based fillers, uh, he started his career working within another company in Uppsala that uh, used to be called uh, Pharmacia. And today it's been bought and sold a lot of times. But, and they had uh, projects ongoing as he started to try to develop a product for eye surgery, an ophthalmic product. Right. Uh, that product was developed based on, uh, uh, well, it was the same sugar-based uh, material, but it was obtained from roosters and uh, not from bacteria. So it was an animal-derived and it also was not cross-linked. But then working with that, uh, Dr. Ogrup, uh, well, he learned a lot and he also had worked at the university before working with uh, the same substance. So he he brought, I mean, at some point that company decided that we are satisfied with having this product for the ophthalmics. We make a lot of money on that and we're not that interested in broadening that scope to be something more. And then, well, Dr. Ogerup uh, decided to try his own, well, wings, if you like, doing something and expand because he wanted to do something more. He thought it was a bit boring being an entrepreneur to just keep doing things the same way they were always done. So that's the start of QMED uh, in, I think, 87 or something. And then in 19... 90, I joined the company. So um, then QMED started working with all kinds of ideas, as you can imagine, on this uh, um, sugar-based molecule too, because this sugar-based molecule is, is fantastic. As, as you know, we, we have it in our body and all vertebrates and some bacteria have it. So the fantastic thing about this molecule is that you can take it from any source and provided you purify it enough, uh, you can then uh, put it into the human body and it will be accepted because it's supposed to be there. So that's, uh, which is a fantastic uh, property for a biomaterial. So then the company, well, the company started working with that uh, in, in the early 90s and, uh, and we worked with uh, seeing what can you do with this molecule. And then obviously the, the, um, the big, big challenge here was as we, uh, I, I cannot say exactly what is, was in the mind of Dr. Ogrup, of course, but as a small company, 
it was probably a very, very good idea to select an area of uh, indication that wasn't already occupied by huge pharmaceutical companies. Like uh, as this molecule, as you know, what it could be used for ophthalmics, uh, it could also be used for injecting into joints and things like that. Uh, and those were already, I mean, there were players in there that were huge. And as I told you, we were like five people. So probably it was good to see, can you find a niche where there isn't anyone uh, using this material? And so the idea was to see if the fillers could be one of those. Out of curiosity, how was it used in ophthalmics? What was the, what was the application there? Uh, in ophthalmics, what you used it for initially was to, uh, during eye surgery, for instance, if you put uh, an intraocular lens into the eye, what you need to do to perform surgery is to make sure that the eye doesn't collapse during uh, the surgery. And so also the vitreous contains a lot of um, um, this substance, this sugar substance, so it's the same substance. So what was uh, done there was to obtain the uh, solution of the substance. You can then inject it into the eye during the surgery to, to make uh, the eye to keep its, its shape. And also as the material is perfectly transparent, you can also uh, use surgical instruments and just look straight through it. So it's, uh, yeah, and then as, as you have done that, if you need to, you can just um, uh, retract it from the eye as well because of the properties of the material, usually we call it viscoelastic, especially as a solution before we go into the cross-linking thing that we do. That was actually not the part, uh, these materials used for ophthalmic surgery, they were not cross-linked. So they were just a solution. Yeah, but you didn't but, know that, uh, did yeah, you, so, I definitely didn't know that. Yeah, but, it's, <laughs> but it's still it's still used, and that was one one success uh, key success parameters for that company, Pharmacia, in the days in in the seventies. And nowadays, everybody is using that as a tool in in eye surgery. That, that's fascinating. So I'm curious, your colleague who developed the sugar based um, product when there wasn't a facial aesthetic industry. Why, why did he choose to, to treat the face? I mean, it, it, would, it seems so obvious and normal now, but back then it would have seemed quite bizarre. Did, did he ever tell you? Well, yes, yes, he did, in fact. So uh, he had uh, connections with France in a way because uh, they had a summer house in, in, in the south of France, he and his family, his wife. And then they also were in, in Paris now and then. And obviously, in Paris, as compared to Uppsala, where, where I live and where the company was, this, well, this business of, of performing uh, uh, treatments to, to, for, for wrinkles and so on was obviously more developed. Since, yeah. And uh, yeah, one thing led to the other, and there was an idea that maybe this can be something. So what happened is actually that, that he and his wife visited a lot of uh, the, the uh, MDs working with these things uh, in Paris and realized that, well, there might be something here. There, there is a need and there is not really 
a good alternative available today. They were not happy with it. The only way that you could do it and in those days uh, was well, the only way. But the one, the one product that was similar to what we have today was, was a collagen-based uh, product. And that uh, well, it didn't have that long duration. And also, it did not really... It wasn't as suitable as a material because the collagen obtained was from... Uh, from uh, bovine origin, and there is a risk if you inject that material, you will have allergic reactions. So you need to test yourself if you're allergic to it first, and then you can use it. And then the duration wasn't very good. So there were a lot of not so positive things. Yeah. So yeah, then they saw an opportunity that maybe this area is somewhere we, we can start here. So I guess in the same vein as what you were just saying about collagen, um, is that why you chose to not go down an animal-based, um, sugar-based molecule sort of um, origin? Is that why you wanted to, to sort of de develop a synthetic way of doing it? But mm, yes, there were many reasons for that. I mean, there is uh, using animal-derived uh, raw materials. It's also a, uh, well, I mean, it, it's not the... the the nicest way to use animals as a source in a way if you just want to, to make this type of product. But also for practical yeah. reasons, obviously, it's it's easier to make uh, this material using a bacterial source. But primarily, I would say uh, it's a safety, the safety reason. Because uh, as actually what, what happened later on as we were in the middle of this development and launching of these products is that uh, in Europe, at least, this what we call the mad cow's disease struck. Mm, yes. And that proved to us that we don't know everything. So these prions that they discovered could actually, uh, well transfer disease between species, that was unknown. But you working with uh, bacterially derived materials, you are so far away because from, from uh, the human cell. A bacteria and a human cell are so different, so you cannot transmit disease from bacterial diseases to, to humans. So what we need to do then is just to make sure you that we purify the material well enough to remove any residual uh, things from, from the process, the fermentation process that is obviously used to make bacterially fermented material. And then, well, we have virtually no impurities at all. And that's a very, very yeah. important safety aspect. And probably today, I would say that 99.9% .9 in this business is using bacterially fermented uh, material as a source. Yeah. Would you be able to just, in, in simple terms, obviously you don't need to go into sort of the exact, you know, um, proprietary process, but how is the filler made from bacteria through to what we see in a syringe at the end of the day? Like what, yeah. how many steps are there all? Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of steps, but uh, to simplify it, I mean, if we would start with, with the, the sourcing of, of the, the material, Obviously, that, that, as I said, that's fermentation followed by purification of, of that material uh, to remove any residual uh, impurities then. And then that material is then delivered to, to us. 
So that raw material is is sourced from from other vendors than ourselves. We don't make that. I think that goes for most of the companies in in this business. And there are some some sources. And but obviously, they are the most important. Uh, uh, vendors we have, of course. So we visit them many times every year to make sure that uh, they are doing what they're supposed to do. Because uh, in this business, of course, and in all this kind of, the, the responsibility for a safe product is 100% on Galderma. You could never say that it's because of a vendor didn't behave, but it's, I mean, that it doesn't matter because the responsibility is ours for the safety and the efficacy of the products. So it's very, very important to have the best, best quality. Then the, the thing is that this material is a soluble material, even though it is very viscous and so on, but it, it doesn't have much of a duration in its native form. So if you would inject it into the human tissue, within a few days, it would actually move away from where you put it and start being degraded by, by the body. Because, I mean, our the human body, uh, it can both uh, synthesize and degrade this material itself. So it has systems of taking care of it. So that was the thing earlier that, uh, that early on that we decided we need to make this uh, uh, non-soluble in, in a nice way. And that's what we do then. We, we take the material and we cross-link it. And uh, that means that we form... Uh, uh, bridges, bonds between the very, very long uh, sugar molecules to make them uh, resistant to, uh, uh, well, firstly, dissolution in the tissue, but also, of course, from uh, degradation within the tissue. Uh, and that's performed uh, using a cross-linker. Uh, and here, by varying the, the parameters within this reaction, how, when you put the cross-linker together with the, the sugar molecule, that is where you come into the different um, uh, filler technologies that we and other companies employ to make products with different uh, properties. So that's where what you can control. After that, well, what thing, what happens when you do this crosslink is also that you create a quite resistant bridge and that enables this material to be sterilized using uh, moist heat, what we call autoclaving. And that provides a very, very good safety uh, margin. So the risk of having a non-sterile product is virtually zero when you use this type of, of, of sterilization. So Per, what exactly is cross-linking? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing you, you say that the phrase and I'm, I'm trying to understand what, what it means. I'm assuming it's not, you know, you're not there with a tiny pair of pliers sort of twisting the molecules. Is it, is it a chemical reaction or how, how do you actually achieve that? I know it's a silly question. It's just, I'm curious as to what it actually means and how you achieve that. Yeah. Uh, well, actually what happens is that you take this uh, the sugar molecule and you mix it with a second compound. And this, this second compound, if you would consider the second compound to act a bit like a, like a crab, actually. It has two claws, and under the conditions of this uh, cross-linking procedure, it wants to react and bind to the, uh, the, the sugar molecule. So it grabs uh, hold of two different sugar molecules, and then it binds and keeps them together. 
And that's that's what we do, and that's what uh, well everybody does uh, in the business. Um, so uh, the thing then is that you have different. Uh, well, what you create is actually, if you would say that you you would have a a 30 kilogram mixture, then you would have a 30 kilogram piece of of crosslinked material. And how would you use that then? Well, it's not easy to use it because you can't uh, put it into syringes and then you couldn't inject it either. So what you do then typically is to to um, make smaller pieces of this. And what uh, what we do then is to push uh, push it through uh, meshes of uh, of set sizes in a way to differentiate different products as well. But also, of course, by varying the cross-linking um, conditions, you can also get uh, softer or firmer uh, gels of, of the sugar, the, the cross-linked sugar molecule. So, so that's uh, yeah, where well, we have a very wide range that you can actually make of these. And did it occur to you at the time, you know, even back in the early 90s, whilst you're playing around with these different configurations of filler, that you you would actually have a different portfolio of stuff? You didn't just have one product. Um, and yet you launched one product for, I'm guessing, quite a, quite a long time until the market sort of accepted it. Yes, I think it came as a um, uh, interaction, you could say, with the market or the HCPs, uh, the, the the doctors using uh, doctors or nurses using the products, uh, and based on their um, experience and input back to us, it's like it has been since we started an ongoing loop with the users and us. And then it was obvious that, well, maybe we could make something even better because I would like to see if this and that indication was, uh, I mean, what, what we can do as a company is we, we can support the use of, of our approved indications. But on the other hand, somehow we always got ideas coming in from the users on maybe it could be possible to use it this and that way. And then for us to, to educate on that, of course, we need to perform a clinical program to, to have the data for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, the ideas of, the, of the, the, the material, they came from us. The ideas on the use are, are coming back in return from, from the uses to us. So it's like a loop. Uh, and, and to do it the best way, of course, there are ideas of different uh, uh, anatomical properties and, and softness and firmness of, of the tissue in the face and so on. So it was obvious to see, well, is there some way to, to improve uh, or optimize the product for a specific use? And yeah, and that's, that's the way it started quite soon after the launch of the first product. There was another one developed and then, uh, well, Today, there are a lot of different products from us and from others within the filler segment, and they are optimized for, for specific uses. So once you've developed the, this you know, portfolio of fillers, but you've sort of decided on one range to start with, how did you then decide you know, a filler volume? I mean, we're used to sort of one mil syringes now, but I gather that when you first launched, there was a slightly different volume, and then, and then you changed it. So how did you decide that and why? 
I think in the first uh, efforts to provide the world with a filler, uh, the the selected. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of practical reasons for why we selected what we we did in in the early days and sourcing of, of things and so on can be can be one reason. But uh, obviously, there was a little bit smaller volume in those days, and it it became clear that a one m ml volume on a syringe was something that was desired from from the users and then as we evolved within manufacturing and and uh, becoming more automated and so on we realized we need to to select the format here that works in in the machines and so uh, we worked with uh, seeing if we could switch to another syringe than the very early ones. And doing so, of course, we evaluated the impact of, of syringe format and so on on the extrusion force, the the um, the force uh, that, you, that you need to uh, have in order to inject the product. So, so that, of course, was a very important part of that. But, but I mean, uh, to, to also to... to to explain here that this extrusion force that you measure is the result of, of many different factors. Of course, the gel is important, also the syringe is important, but also the, the, the type of, of uh, needle or cannula used, the length and the, the width of that one, they all impact the, the uh, extrusion force. So it's important to have knowledge on this. But I, I would say that the way that these products are used, of course, is, is a bit of a heritage of, of the earlier existing products uh, on the market that were collagen-based. Because in, in essence, of course, that was already established since, a few, since quite some time then. So uh, I think this was a natural continuation of, of, of having that type of injection, but uh, having a material that behaved differently and, well, in, in a positive way. It had a better biocompatibility and it also provided a much, much better duration than the, the earlier collagen-based products. What were the um, the major challenges that you faced for going from concept to actually, you know, releasing the product into the open market? And you know, curious as to sort of get an understanding of what was the, what was the initial feedback that you got during that sort of you know initial period after releasing the product? Yeah, well, firstly, the 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 obvious uh, hurdles you have to pass as being a small company. I, I mean, at the time of of uh, the approval of. of of the first uh, sugar-based filler, uh, we were no longer like five people, but I think we were maybe 25 people, which is not a lot, really. Uh, so obviously, we we had to do a lot to adapt to to the requirements, of course, uh, for a company in in the what is uh, the medical device business actually. Uh, so it is, I mean, well close to the pharmaceutical, but it is a medical device regulations that you need to adapt to and you need to have what we call a CE mark uh, approval to be approved in Europe. And that means you have to adapt a, a quality system, you have to work according to instructions for everything and you have to, well, then you, ha you have to have validated manufacturing processes 
and sterilization processes and clean rooms and uh, approved vendors for all raw materials and so on. I mean, it's a lot of work for a few people to, to, to actually accomplish that. I mean, for, because I think for us, with the heritage in, in this, uh, the, the, the sugar that we use, we knew a lot about that and we learned all the time about that. So we were, I mean, for the lab stuff, we were fine. Uh, but I think then from a documentation point of view, that's a big hurdle for a small company to pass. But then once we had the approval of the, uh, the products, uh, firstly then in Europe, it was obvious to us that the demand from the users on this product were huge. So there was no way we, we could really supply uh, the demands of the product. And that, uh, I mean, it, it not only initially, but after a while. So obviously, the, the, these uh, products were very well appreciated by the users. And it was as we hoped that uh, these, uh, these fillers were, were much, much better than the existing alternative. So, yeah, I mean, and then, then of course, uh, the, the, the challenge we had then was to, to scale up and to make this uh, in a more automated way. I mean, that's, that's where we still are. We always will be. Do, do these procedures in, in an even better way uh, to, to have, uh, well, a better output, if you like, in, in products because the, the market... Uh, is is still expanding. Do you have any idea how many mils of filler uh, QMED sold in the first year? Like, what were you anticipating versus, you know, you said this sort of avalanche of demand? I, I would guess that was in in the first first years a few tens of thousands, maybe one hundred thousand or something like that. I mean, today it's possible to 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 uh, make. Four million or something like that <laughs> in a year. So I mean, you can yeah, imagine it's, it's a big, it's a big, big difference because. But also that that also necessitates this automation and things like that. Uh, of course, yes. So I mean, it's 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 a different world today than it was at that time. Yeah. I'm assuming uh, all of the filler is made in Uppsala, or do you have more than one factory? No, all of the fillers uh, are, are made in our factory in 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 Uppsala. Yes, that's true. So, uh, yeah. Well, what, what's Uppsala like? Is it sort of uh, city? Are you based in the country? Like, where are you? Well, yeah, no. Uppsala is, is a city. It's actually the fourth largest city of Sweden. Uh, it's not that big, though. We are about. 200,000 inhabitants in, in Uppsala. Uh, it's a university city. So we have a big uh, university or two big university. One, one that is more like uh, for like every kind of education. And then we have the only uh, university for agricultural science also in Uppsala. Because Uppsala is in an agricultural well, part of, the, of, the, of, of Sweden. Uh, but uh, yeah, there is, and there is also a very big uh, university hospital in Uppsala. So it's a lot about uh, education and so on in Uppsala. Not that much actually 
industry, but uh, the parts, the industry that does exist in Uppsala is uh, a lot in, in bioscience, actually. This company that was called Pharmacia was sold to different companies, and today there are different uh, stakeholders, different companies who, who buy, uh, own parts of that, uh, what used to be Pharmacia, manufacturing all kinds of drugs and medical devices. And then we are one one of the bigger employers in, in, in Uppsala, actually. Can I ask you a personal uh, question, Per? Um, <laughs> so you, you're part of this team that, you know, revolutionizes the way, you know, treatments are performed all around the world for, for many, many years to come. And I'm assuming that even then you didn't realize what you had stumbled across and what it would eventually become. And I, I kind of get the feeling that creating something like that, that's sort of like a once in a, in a lifetime thing that someone may do, it's hard to replicate that kind of feeling again, that high of, of achieving something that is on a grand scale. What is it that sort of keeps you going? What is it that you still love about what you do? Because I'm listening to this conversation. You're so knowledgeable. It's like you're an encyclopedia of, you know, this, this particular topic. So what is it that sort of keeps you going? And what is it that you get excited about on a, on a well, daily basis? Well, there, there are, I mean, there are probably two main uh, parts uh, one, of course, is that you, there is so much more to learn about what you can do with this material and ideas you may have because we have today, today we are not 25. Today, you know, in, in the, you know, Uppsala, we are over 500 uh, employees working mainly with this. So that's uh, a lot of, of course, uh, some of it is, is manufacturing, doing things the best you can in the same way every day. And then some of us work with trying to find new ways of, of doing this. But uh, yeah, that's one part. Then the other part that I think was uh, a big uh, turning point for me in, in doing this is the first time I actually traveled uh, to meet with with uh, our well customers and also our co-workers in other parts of the world it really opened my eyes to how how this thing affects much more than just the Uppsala 500 people site here so so we have employees all around the world and we have companies uh, or customers uh, uh, doctors using the products all over the world and meeting interacting with with uh, them it provides so much more than just uh, well sitting trying to find out new ways to use the material using uh, programs on your computer so i i think definitely when you see that it's uh, it was obvious to me that uh, this this is fantastic and i i can also by by interact i can teach others and make them understand and they can make me understand how they want the these things to work so i think the interaction with uh, with users uh, is actually probably the most uh, driving force for me to to keep doing this stuff because uh, that's really fantastic for me and don't forget the millions of patients who are yeah. You know, benefiting further down the chain of, well, of enjoying well, of course, things. Of course, yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. not being a doctor, I don't really get to meet that many patients. Usually, I get, I get to to see and hear a lot about uh, 
use and of course you you get to see the the results of the treatments yes yes you do but of course i mean and and in this business because i mean what we are doing here is 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 to do uh, treatments to to uh, improve uh, the way you 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 look and the the one the, the one most important thing is here that in this business i would say that for medical devices in the way we do i think safety is actually even more important than in the pharmaceutical business it's in another way because the 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 benefit risk thing here is that the, you can accept no risks more or less because the benefit is that well it makes you feel good with yourself which is of course fantastic and very very important for for the patients here because yeah well, the way we feel i would say maybe it's the one most important thing we have if you feel good you you well that's fantastic but uh, the safety is is really key here so working with the safety that's that's what we have done and we'll always do yeah yeah, that's a really good point. I'm I'm curious. The the listeners are going to be screaming out, asking, "What actually happens when you know when filler is injected into the tissue? What happens on a molecular or a you know a, a scientific sort of level?" Uh, to your understanding, well, I mean, firstly, what is fantastic with the the uh, the molecule we're using this sugar uh, in a way when you inject it well not much happens really on a, on a molecular level not that much happens with the material as such it's not like if you would inject something and then the tissue would wonder what is this here and want to to remove it or something so actually uh, firstly, when you inject the material based on its properties, if it's a softer or a firmer material, it will either, if it's firm, stay where you put it and give more of a projective uh, result. Or if it's a softer material, it will spread and you have a smoother result. And that also has to do with the tissue quality or tissue support of, of what type of material you select. Because that, and that's also based on what type of skin you have. If you have a, a thinner skin, and also if you want to inject in a in a in more superficial or a deeper plane of, of of the tissue, but then what happens is that the degradation of this material, because that is very important to to stress that the most important thing here is this material is not permanent. So it will disappear, but it takes some time. But the degradation is rather, uh, well, it's not very active. So it's, it's, it's not the body doing something. It's as far as we understand today has to do with free radicals. So it's a free radical degradation mainly. And then, of course, in certain parts, also a mechanical uh, degradation, injecting it into a, a part of the face that is moving, of course, it causes a little bit more stress to the material than if you put it where you, you can't move anything. So, um, yeah, basically it's uh, what you would call hydrolysis that occurs. So pieces of this material are continuously released from, from the, the, um, uh, the injected material. 
and the, the fantastic thing here is that since the body has a uh, system already to take care of this material as as the body can synthesize and degrade the material itself it will just take care of, of any material that is released from from the uh, injected crosslink material so you won't have like deposits or something uh, somewhere in the body uh, because it will just be taken care of as 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 it would if it was uh, part of your own sugar that you have and then well in a, in in a some time the the result will be no more visible and then uh, well then you will have to perform another treatment to to keep uh, the desired result but then there's the paradox that we talk about integration so this never quite been clear to me even as an experience injector on the one hand we're saying the product degrades and and i think everyone accepts that it does go but at the same time we talk about this concept of integration where it sort of becomes part of you so it looks natural and feels natural so mm-hmm. isn't that sort of saying two opposite things well what what we wanted to 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 do when we talk about the integration is that we we are trying to always say product integration not tissue integration because it's not the tissue really integrating in the in the pro it's the product integrating with the tissue and the, the, we have uh, performed studies that you can see that the softer products actually integrate more with the 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 tissue than the firmer products the firmer products they more stay where you put them and don't really integrate that much with the, with the tissue so so uh, and that means that they also can provide uh, a lifting capacity they they have the ability to to lift the tissue in another way than the than the products that are softer but integration i would say integration is more like that's more like what what happens initially when when you inject the product and then of course i mean as we say they will be degraded and sooner well well sometime they will be gone from the system but they don't they don't really create being being the uh, the substance they are they don't really create any stimulation of the tissue to to interact with them it's more like they're just there okay so so in sorry integration essentially means that the product you know doesn't like you say you know sort of become a hybrid of your tissue it just sits nicely and doesn't yes. um cause a inflammatory or or otherwise reaction. Yeah. So it like yeah either okay. disperses or it like stays where you put it. Yeah. Depending yeah. on its Perfect. its rheological properties, its softness or firmness. Yeah. Something that's uh, you know from from a business owner's perspective and sort of having thousands of treatments performed in my in my clinics over the years, you, you sort of get these occasional patient where they'll be treated with with a filler, like a sugar filler. And it won't last very long. Or you've got, you've sometimes got this, this disparity between individuals based on their genetic predisposition to, to certain things. Can you explain, like from a scientific perspective, what actually causes sort of those vast differences sometimes in longevity between patients? Yes, uh, I think as as from what we know that you have this degradation of of the material that comes mainly from uh, from free radicals, but also like mechanical. Uh, 
there are different ways to trigger the free radical, uh, well, the, the amount of free radicals. And I, I think, I mean, as you, as you said already, first is that is a predisposition based on, on who you are. Not much you can do about that because you have different metabolism as a, as a, as an individual. And then secondly, also, of course, you can affect the amount of free radicals by more like lifestyle stuff. And that, uh, well, how you do it, uh, I don't exactly know. But uh, w- one thing, of course, is, is uh, well, depending on uh, if you have uh, ultraviolet uh, uh, irradiation or what you say on, on your tissue, that can probably affect this. Also, then, there is one important thing that has to do with uh, the injection occasion. And depending on how the uh, traumatization of the tissue is uh, how much trauma there is caused by the injection, that can definitely also trigger a higher um, amount of free radical formation. And that's more like what's happened initially. And then, of course, after a while, that will decrease. But for the implant to have a very uh, the best possible start, uh, the least traumatization of the tissue possible is probably a benefit to have a longer duration later on. But it's a good advert to wear sunscreen yes. and eat lots of good food and vitamins and, yeah, and, and vegetables yeah. and, and, and fruits because uh, you want to mop up those free radicals. And no, but uh, I yeah, mean, yes. I mean, obviously, <laughs> what's good for your health is is good for the result uh, of, of this type of treatment as well. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And and. Uh, Meditation, perhaps, yeah, could be calm frame of mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look for, from my personal experience, and this is you know my own sort of anecdote. Is it's those sort of very lean, just generally quite skinny people where they don't have to try to lose weight; they just are skinny people. They, they tend to be the people who will tell you that they metabolize quicker, and they know that they do because they don't carry any weight, and they've they've tried sugar-based fillers before and you know they like them but they they anecdotally just sort of metabolize quicker so i think you know i think that's probably right yeah it's just a genetic versus an environmental thing one thing uh, we sort of touched on earlier we mentioned a bit of about extruder and force and and a few other things but the science of rheology itself i mean that that's a confusing um sort of term and even injectors sort of get a little bit sort of tripped up with what does it actually mean so you know, when you guys were in, in the lab in the 90s sort of developing the filler, did did you have a concept of, of, of these terms like G prime and, and viscosity and all the rest of it? Or, or was that, did that come after sort of as an afterthought? Well, it was, well, yes and no. You can say uh, already in the early development days of other products, rheology uh, and this G prime and things have been important. Uh, also for the, the non-cross-linked material, you can do rheological measurements, but that's more to look at molecular weights and things like that. So for us, uh, it actually came in quite early as a means of explaining the uh, result that could be seen clinically. And in doing so, uh, what, what actually happens when you inject these uh, impl- these uh, molecules is that they will be exposed to the um, 
pressure, if you like, by, by the surrounding tissue. So there are forces that will try to, well, do something about the fact that things became a bit different now because someone put something in here. Uh, and then you need to resist those forces. And that's uh, what the one part of the rheology is about resistance to deformation, talking about yep. then the ability to, to, to lift tissue. That, that's one part. Uh, and doing so, uh, it was logical for us to see uh, if there's some way to measure that. And there is, of course, using this uh, rheometry instrumentation, which is, uh, well, scientifically accepted, meaning that measuring this, these products using this instrumentation, you can measure in Australia or Sweden or anywhere, provided you know the setup of the instrument, you'll have the same results. So you can compare different products and so on. But I would say still today, of course, you need to have first the clinical data to see what, what uh, your experiences and then you you can use these rheological measurements to to provide an explanation. Uh, and I, I can say also that we have taken it uh, further because this G prime, as you said, uh, the the elasticity of of the material, the resistance to deformation, is one thing. That's more like a static property of of these products. When you want to look at more dynamic properties of the products, we have also uh, other means of measuring, looking at the, the what we call the flexibility of materials. And that is more applicable to softer and more, um, uh, well, viscous materials. The, the of the same well the same molecule of course so that can for instance show why a material would be suitable to be put into a more uh, movable dynamic part of the face around the mouth or in the lip when you're smiling for instance and that would show that this material uh, could adapt to to the uh, forces and movement of the tissue. So there is two different ones. You have the G prime, the lifting capacity, firmness and softness, and then you have the flexibility, ability to to move, and with with the tissue. Speaking of, of lips, I, I remember very early on um, when you know these treatments are still being being pioneered. Um, you know, you'd have patients anecdotally coming back and saying, "Look, I think that um, you know my product is is lasting longer," or they'd feel that their lips potentially were, even without product um, physically in place, that the results were still long-lasting. And, and, and I guess the hypothesis was that it was stimulating, you know, the body's own natural production of collagen, um, you know, probably through some sort of mechanical trauma. But I've heard stories, um, I've never been able to ask someone this question who'll be able to answer it for me. So this is my perfect opportunity. <laughs> um, you know, is there any, is there any indication or science um, behind the rumour that, you know, the product itself, you know, the the, um, the sugar filler actually stimulates collagen as well, or is it just the mechanical trauma, I guess, of the needle or the cannula delivering that treatment? Yes. Uh, as I mean, my, my personal opinion on, on this, and as far as we have seen in, in trying to see if there is any any collagen stimulating properties, is that we, we cannot see that there are any properties in the material 
as opposed to, I mean, other types of, of stimulating substances that exist also in the business. But in this, this is a very, would you say, inert material. This is a very, well, it, it doesn't do much. But of course, when you uh, inject a material into the tissue, uh, these mechanical forces of, of um, uh, well, uh, what you say, stretching the tissue, that is a well-known fact that this can uh, stimulate uh, some collagen formation, the stretch of tissue. So, so in my mind, I would say the explanation from what has in some cases been seen in, in collagen formation should be the result of stretching. So it's not really related yeah. to to the material as such. Uh, it's more like a mechanical thing, as you as you said. Yeah. So so by virtue of there actually being product there, it could be that product or anything else that's filling that space that's causing, as you said, mechanical trauma within the tissue. So it's probably a combination of of the needle and actually the product stretching. So it's probably double whammy. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, since other competitive brands are, you know have launched their own things, and it's a it's a huge market now, but has that competition actually helped drive, you know, what what you and your team are doing? Does it sort of help to have competition? Yes, obviously, yes. I mean, think if there was only one one car, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's really. Of course, we are we are triggering each other. The products, of course, uh, is they are different uh, different technologies in in making them. Also, um, different ways in promoting actually these products because they they have often a uh, scientific background that triggers and uh, make you interested in ex- experiencing or, or finding out how other companies are, are thinking. But what I think is also that uh, it's very important to, to never lose the focus on that safety is the most important thing here. And that's why, yeah. I mean, safety and, and that uh, also involves the interaction with, with the users of, of these products. And that is crucial that that you get uh, reports back on, on if something is is working uh, not, not as anticipated and to see. And it also, from efficacy point of view, if there could be some improvements, it's also working together with, with users is the most important thing. But then, of course, I mean, it's, it's fantastic that there are so many different products on the market. But I, I think, I mean, you need to realize that it's not, it's not only the product because, well, looking back, I mean, when we were 25 people at the company, obviously, we, we could not have provided the same support to the users as we can today. And I mean, when I said 500 people, that's only at the manufacturing site. Worldwide, we, we are several thousand people working with these uh, different things and we are able to support users regardless of, of questions that they, they may have. And that, I think, uh, that, that's also part, part of the product. And that's also where we, we compete with each other within this business to, to give the best possible support and training. So, I mean, that's a very, very important part also of the products. And then, of course, 
now and then uh, there are new products coming into the market, of course. But then a large portion of the time is expanding the use of those products into new indications, clinical trials, and answering questions and educating and training and, and so on. So, so it's it's really that that's a big, big part of doing this. How did um, QMed initially educate you know the first generation of injectors to sort of safe, sorry, inject safely and you know with great efficacy? Like, where did those sort of protocols come from? And I guess from from you know the person that was part of the development and the science behind these products. You know, did you have any input into that, and how did it all sort of come about? No, I, I did not have any input into the, the, the clinical uh, use of the product, apart from the fact that, as, as we touched upon earlier, there was already a way of using fillers, even though they were of another origin than this one. But, but then, uh, as has become much more evident in, in more recent years here, is that uh, even though what we are doing here is is just injecting uh, something quite superficial into the tissue so it might sound that well it's very easy in in one way it is if you would only look at it from only look but if you would look at it i mean from there, there is an aesthetic artistic thing which is very important because it's i mean and no not everyone can paint the mona lisa so i mean you know <laughs> yeah and the same for 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 uses of the product that you are an artist doing this but you are also a, a an aids healthcare professional so it's it's very important to never forget that well of course the result is one thing but then there are a lot of stuff underneath the skin further down and you need to know the anatomy of these blood vessels and, and nerves and everything because what we're doing is we're putting a, well, a new uh, a material in there and that can cause complications if you don't know what, 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 uh, what you're doing there. So, I mean, and of course, that is why it has been from the start restricted to only people with the, the um, uh, correct professional uh, background, education, and also obviously training where we employ uh, uh, users uh, who are training others, of course, based on, on the, the, the clinical uh, experience that we have or clinical data we have. and the, So, I mean, I think it's really, uh, well, it's really something that uh, is very, very important to stress here. That this, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't want to sort of make this an uncompliant question, so I'll try and word it delicately. But um, did you know that you had a dissolving agent for the sugar-based fillers when they were developed. So that that safety aspect was already in your mind. Uh, yes, there was. I mean, that, that uh, this material that you can dissolve this with was around for other purposes. Actually, it, it it's it's used for uh, what you call that then um, in vit in vitro fertilization as well. Actually. Because yeah. then you, oh, that's yeah, true. Yeah. Yes, so yeah. that that material was there. Uh, so yeah. so yeah, there was knowledge about that. But uh, yes, so of course, I mean that's 
that's a major um, safety advantage of this material versus, for instance, permanent material, the, the ability to rather quickly remove the material in case you need to. Well, when I was just starting out in the industry, we had no concept of what a vascular occlusion was. So you kind of, I mean, now that we know, I mean, they, there's so many more treatments being performed around the world. These things can happen from time to time, even to the most experienced, with the most experienced injector, it can happen. So it was sort of like so fortuitous, even though we didn't know those complications would come to the forefront. I mean, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. It's incredible yeah. Yeah. how many injections, you know, alluding to what Per was saying about how many sales they made, that that concept didn't come around till sort of the early 2000s. So, yeah, it's amazing. Crazy. Yeah. Um, I know that you're not going to be able to answer this, Per, but I have to ask you because the <laughs> listeners are going to be screaming we'll if we don't. <laughs> in their cars. Um, what's coming next? Can you give us anything? Can you dangle no, I, just something really course, cool? Of course, obviously, <laughs> this is very confidential areas within a company like ours, but, but I, you can never stop like expanding in, in, in either direction. So looking at optimization in, in uh, well, the, the lifting or the flexible part of the products is something we are continuously doing. But uh, more than that, I, I cannot say into specific areas because, uh, yeah, as you, as you already said, it's, it's not possible for me to, to disclose that. So the rumor that you are developing a filler that injects itself, you can't talk about? No, robot. I cannot say anything. <laughs> Actually, I'll ask you, I mean, I'm not trying to sort of fish here, but this is just a theoretical question. Um, I wrote a paper with a number of um, colleagues just in the summer, of, or your summer, our winter, and um, in my, my section of the paper was talking about the bony layer of the face. and you know, I know there are some other competitive brands that have different um, products, but we don't really have a filler that stimulates or can be injected into bone. Do you think that's a theoretical possibility? I think, I mean, there are theoretical possibilities for everything, of course, but then I, I'm not uh, an injector. So injecting into bone to me sounds like something that would be very difficult to do. But uh, mm -hmm. definitely looking at different, types of, of substances and things like that is something that is continuous ongoing for us and for others in this business to see how you can diversify yourself uh, into having different types of, of, of products. Because, I mean, yeah. the, the material we are talking about today, this sugar, of course, uh, yeah, it, it's, a fantastic, it's a fantastic material because it, it doesn't really interact actively that much with the tissue. And my guess is that in case you would stimulate uh, uh, bone formation, you would probably have to employ something totally different to activate something. And then, well, I mean, looking at that, then also there are considerations you need to make. Is this still going to be a medical device or are we passing the, the border over to, to the pharmacy, to the drug side here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess the other thing, just uh, from an injector's perspective, is I guess our holy grail is loose skin, saggy skin. What are we going to do about that in the future? For <laughs> <laughs> well, the saggy skin. Yeah. We, you know, we'll often have to turn away people and say, I'm sorry, your skin is too, you know, 
too too inelastic now, so you have to go and see a surgeon for a facelift. So, do you think that it'll ever be possible to have an injectable product to counteract that issue? No, that's tricky to to say. Really, I mean, you guys are the experts here uh, in that. <laughs> so maybe maybe there is also somewhere where you have passed the limit for what you can do with the fillers as they are, and you need to actually do something to to kind of correct these major things by by pulling things a little bit or something to stretch it. There you go. I've given you another project for the next yes. time. If, uh, <laughs> yes. If you don't get Thank bored. You. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I, I really have got so many more questions, but we'll we'll have to <laughs> keep it there. We've been going for well over an hour now. But um thank you so much for your time, Per. We we really, you know, yeah, quite honored to have you on. Thank you. Um Absolutely. any parting comments from your side? Anything you wanted to say to the listeners? Well, I would say I'm really, really happy that I was able to to answer some questions to you and hopefully straighten out some question marks for you. Um, and of course, if you are interested in knowing more and so on, you are always uh, welcome to, to contact our company with any questions you might have and we will be happy to try to, to help help you with those and uh, yeah I, I think as always it's always fantastic to be part of participating in in interacting with the the well the real world if you like because yeah. i mean you you all of you out there we are who what, what makes us who we are so it's really i i would say i'd like to thank you guys because it's a fantastic opportunity for us at Galderma to be able to interact with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time and congratulations again to Galderma now, but previously known as, as QMed on 25 years. It's It's gone very, very quickly and you know, you, you've pioneered um, some amazing products that have, that have changed the face literally um, of our industry and, and, the, <laughs> and, and the way that we sort of look at ourselves. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time. We're going to put all of the details of how to get in contact with your company um, at the bottom of the um, podcast description when we release it. And um, thank you so much for your time again. Yes, ah, thank you so, thank much, you so uh, much. And stay safe. I hope the COVID situation is calm and, and everyone is well. And uh, maybe we'll come to Uppsala one day. Maybe Absolutely. we'll do an Inside Aesthetics on location. Yeah, yeah. you're so we'll welcome. Uh, you can give us a tour. Yeah. Okay, please do. Yeah, well, we're, okay. we're on a private tour of, of, of the factory. Oh, I, I can provide that as well for you, for sure. <laughs> okay, thank fantastic. you so much. Thank you so much, Per. Take okay. care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 